for me, in terms of who I am and who I was, I think it only could have come as a result of this kind of maniacal, single-minded devotion to to the craft. And like I say in the book, I, I have mixed feelings about that. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Do you read it? Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, let's get neighborly. Have you been getting closer to your neighbors during quarantine? Well, for today's guests, it's not just the pandemic that's bringing them together. It's their shared love of craft. Novelist Julie Oringer was on Bookable earlier this year, and we talked about her incredible book, The Flight Portfolio, and I'm delighted she's back for this bonus conversation. When I asked her who she wanted to talk to, she said her neighbor, who happens to be New York Times best-selling cartoonist and illustrator, Adrian Tomina. Julie and Adrian live in the same building in Brooklyn, but they're talking on the phone while she's in Maine and he's back home taking care of her houseplants. Adrian's newest book is an illustrated memoir called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist, and it comes out on July 21st. In this conversation, they talk about everything from craft to mentorship to graph paper. It's poignant, informative, and deeply interesting. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This is Julie Oringer. I'm speaking to you from Blue Hill, Maine, where um, I'm sitting in Jonathan Leatham's study and speaking to Adrian Tomina, who is, ironically enough, my upstairs neighbor. So a few days ago, Adrian and I were uh, just separated by a few feet, and now we're 453 miles apart. Um, but uh, thanks to Bookable, um, the amazing new podcast hosted by my friend, uh, the incredible writer Amanda Stern, um, we are now connected via Skype, um, Blue Hill, Maine to Brooklyn, New York, and we're going to be talking about writing in the pandemic and uh, being neighbors in Brooklyn, and especially about Adrian's new book, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist, which is going to be out when, Adrian? Very shortly, right? July 21st. Okay, so it's coming right up. Yeah. Um, so uh, just to, uh, to give a little bit of personal background, um, Adrian and I have known each other for kind of a long time. We had a bunch of friends in common uh, when we were both living in the Bay Area. And then we ran into each other at a playground in Brooklyn uh, where our kids were both playing. And it turned out that Adrian was looking for a new apartment and our upstairs neighbors were moving out of theirs. And so Adrian ended up becoming my upstairs neighbor. So um, so we've lived under the same roof for like, how long now, Adrian? Like three or four years? I think at least, yeah. Yeah, maybe four years. And and I will always be grateful to you for making that effort and coming over and, and saying hi to me and and then hooking us up with uh, this apartment because, like you said, we were essentially, uh, I guess, in a very gentle way, getting evicted from an apartment and we needed to to move quickly. Um, and uh, and I 
I'm also very <laughs> picky, as as you can imagine. And so I'd been house or apartment hunting for for several weeks and feeling very despondent. So it really was like a kind of a just out of the blue miracle where I went home and and said to to Sarah, like, hey, I this is the weirdest thing, but I think I found <laughs> an apartment for us. And um yeah, so and now we're now we're here. Well, New York housing serendipity is rare, so I'm really glad that I played a part in that. It's true. Um, I, I, I would I would hate anyone else who told that story, probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but um, the great thing now is that we can house all of our writing insecurities under one roof. Yes. <laughs> um, which, you know, I realized in a kind of a more acute way when I read your new book, uh, where you speak so eloquently and in so many different ways about um, how we're beset by embarrassment and shame as we make our way into writing lives. Um, and so it's, it was funny to me as I was reading this book because um, I was thinking about uh, how shortly after you published Killing and Dying, which is your fairly recent um, story collection, um, you said to me, Julie, no, this was such a pain in the ass. I think I'm basically never going to write another book. Yeah. Um, and then not too long after that, you were working on another book and now you've <laughs> finished yet another book. Um, and so I guess I'm curious to know, uh, how you traveled the path from being fed up with writing books to feeling as though it was a necessity again, and then producing uh, this book, which I just have absolutely loved. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I feel like I, I hope that you have uh, sometimes have had a similar experience, but um, I, I always feel like whenever I finish a book that 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 might be it for me. Like this has been uh, this has been happening for the last uh, at least three or four books that whenever I finish it, I think, well, that might that might be it for me. And I'm going to. Um, fulfill my fantasy of working at a newspaper kiosk in the subway station or something. Um, <laughs> and I just, I, I think, I don't know, I guess um, maybe it would be different if I had a different working method or a different style that made the process um, more fun on a day-to-day -day basis or more relaxed, but it, it always ends up feeling kind of grueling and, uh -huh. um, uh, uh, and again, you can probably speak to this, but especially having young kids, sometimes it feels like that, um, completing the idea of completing a book is just like an impossible, uh, dream. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, is that, or, or do you, do you always feel just energized and, and ready to move on to the next thing? I'm curious. Well, first of all, no way. I always feel completely enervated by the idea of starting something new. You know, it just seems insurmountable, especially mm -hmm. because having young kids, you have already seen the distance if you've finished a book while having young kids, which I've somehow managed to do. You've right. seen the distance that you need to travel. And right. so I'm just embarking on a story collection now and also somehow in the midst of that started a new novel. And I just oh don't... Uh, I don't know how, especially under the current circumstances, um, I will, I will walk that path from here to there. Mm -hmm. um, but but then there is something that keeps me doing the research I need to do and putting words on the page, and and it kind of feels like it has to do with the, you know, the impetus of the story 
itself. And in the case of um, the loneliness of the long distance cartoonists, it seems like what was creating that drive was a desire to capture um, just how many kind of psychological pitfalls there are or how many times events conspire to show you your own smallness or <laughs> the um, limitations of, of what you're able to do compared to what you aspire to do. And I, I wonder um, if we can talk a little bit about how you moved from um, the fiction you were writing before this to that more, to that autobiographical subject. I mean, this is a memoir. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the simplest answer is just that I kind of try and um, move in a different direction from from book to book, um, at least in the in the last few books of mine where I felt like I did a graphic novel with shortcomings and then I wanted to do short stories again with killing and dying. And then um, when I finished that book, uh, I actually had a handful of other ideas for more short stories, but I had the feeling like um, that, you know, it would just, it would be sort of, I don't know how, I didn't know how much appetite there would be for uh, just something that felt kind of like a leftovers from, from killing and dying. So I wanted to do something as different as, as at least I'm capable of um, mm -hmm. within, my, within, within my limits. And, um, and so the idea for this book has been in the back of my mind for a long time. And I thought this would be a good time to do something that was, in black and white and that instead of color and that was autobiographical instead of fiction and that was drawn loosely kind of in a sketchbook style rather than meticulously in a illustration style i guess mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. so i just wanted to both both for for my own um sanity and also a little bit thinking about um you know how, how what what an imagined audience might be tired of from me or what they might be excited, <laughs> what they might be excited about. Yeah. Well, I really love the way the, um, the book has this kind of formal intimacy that goes along with its thematic intimacy. So when you read the book, which I hope everybody's going to do, um, you'll see, first of all, that it's written on graph paper, um, as if it were a notebook, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it seems I feel like I don't. I haven't seen that before as a um, cartoonist representation of the memoir form. It's as if, in addition to being let into your mind, we're actually being let into your book, which is so incredible. I mean, this is one of the benefits of of living downstairs from you that I feel like sometimes I actually get to see a glimpse of your work in progress. Yeah, you know. Um, but I think that that's something we don't really. Um, usually get to see and so first of all that was one of the things that I thought was really um that was really great that creates this real kind of intimacy between the reader and you as the writer but I wonder if that also comes with a certain feeling of exposure I mean in a sense it's you're still controlling in every way what appears on the page but when your material is your own life mm -hmm. um you're allowing in I think a certain degree of of messiness or of um, just kind of uh, raw honesty that maybe isn't there the same way when you're writing fiction. Yeah, well, the to to 
address the the graph paper thing i there there's the 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 most practical reason for it was that i didn't <laughs> i didn't feel like i had the the strength and the energy to draw another book in the way that i had drawn killing and dying which was in a lot of places kind of like almost doing a like a new yorker illustration for each panel and coloring uh-huh. and coloring it and i thought oh, i just i'm not going to be able to do that especially right now with the the ages that the kids are at and everything and so in a way the idea of the graph paper i thought was sort of a a way to excuse <laughs> a, a looser rougher style of drawing to make it um uh to make something that was going to be easier for me seem intentional and and meaningful like uh that it was as if torn directly from from my my real sketchbooks um and the other idea came the other reason behind that was that um there are some cartoonists who draw their work on graph paper but then when they scan it they do it as a black and white scan and the blue graph lines disappear mm-hmm. and you just and you just see the black artwork and so the blue lines were basically just like a guide for them and a few times i've actually seen the original artwork on the graph paper and i always thought oh that looks so cool like like that like i wish um yeah i wish uh, they or you know someone had had just shot it in that way which is i guess a little more expensive but um so that was sort of in the back of my mind too i i just aesthetically i liked the the look of it and then it ended up fitting I guess well with what you're describing the more intimate kind of uh introspective uh content of of this book. Yeah, but it's cool how that it it also carries an element of of the circumstances of your life because right. it is it's part of the story that you're telling about yourself to say, you know, my life now is constituted such that that I need to work in a way that's easier for me in this particular sense. Yeah. to get the work done, you know, because yeah. I think that's part of the difficulty. Um, you and I, the other night, we're having a socially distanced drink in front <laughs> of our house, and we're talking about the fact that Zadie Smith has an essay collection coming <laughs> out soon, um, one that she wrote during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and when I read a little bit about the collection, um, I came across uh, a, something where she herself was talking about those pieces and saying, you know, these pieces are short and they're kind of rough because these were the circumstances of my life at the time. I didn't have a lot of time to edit and the pieces came out short because I didn't have a lot of time to write. And I guess there's something about um, the the way that we're trained, if we're trained sort of by the kind of perfectionist um, writers and professors um, who tend to to teach and who I tended to study with, um, who would sort of argue against that in a way and say, well, you know, revise everything until mm-hmm. um, it's completely set. But then there's another argument to be made for um, capturing a particular moment like Zadie is doing or for writing our lives the way they are with with a bit of their difficulty and messiness intact, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think that one of the unintended outcomes of 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 this book was um or at least it wasn't what i thought of when i started the book was to me it really feels more like um a snapshot of what my life is right now and and i sort of think of all the 
rest of it as as the the path that 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 brought me to this point. And um, so, yeah, I, I think I think it, it it works in that regard. And um, and like I said, I, I think I, I started out with just the the early part of the book in mind, like the the anecdotes and the jokes, <laughs> um, which after about a hundred pages, I noticed that um, uh, Sarah's reaction to each new page was getting more and more muted and finally <laughs> and and finally i think she said i you know the stuff is great but is this gonna just keep going is it is it i know you said it was going to be like 200 pages is it 200 pages of this same <laughs> kind of um humili- hum- humiliation embarrassment joke over and over again and then um uh and i i by that time i'd already had a plan so i said no just just wait, because I think it's 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 going somewhere, and that's part of the reason why when I was working on it, um, my my publisher wanted to start sending out advanced pages just to get interest in it going. Uh-huh. Um, and I said, but at the like starting as early as like halfway through the book, and I said, you know what, I I, I think people should read the whole thing, and I think that um, if you just read the beginning part or you read the end part, they seem like kind of too incomplete things and i want i want people to experience it together so we we held on to the 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 pages until until the whole thing could be sent out intact well that is such a it's such an interesting point that you bring up i mean there there are a couple of things i want to talk about in what you just said first of all that uh you have an in-house critic i mean you're right. you're showing things to More Sarah, than your one. wife more than one, actually. My my well, that's old, right. oldest daughter Nora is also a, a a reader as as the work is in progress. Oh, that's amazing! So, okay, so Nora is now eleven, right? Not yet. She's ten. So. Oh, she's still ten. Okay, um, and um, some of what you're writing is pretty intense. I mean, I know that she's a super avid reader um, and is reading some stuff that's pretty advanced for a ten year old, um, but at what point did you decide that you could start showing stuff to her? I mean, she hmm. must have, you know, she must have seen you and Sarah, you know, talking about it and thinking about it together. But when right. I'm curious to know when, I mean, Jacob just read one of my short stories for the first time. And I must wow. say it was really anxiety producing. Wow. You know, he wrote, he read that story called note to sixth grade self. And I just oh, thought, wow. Oh my God, you know, like what is your, how's my own kid going to react to, this work, you know, a yeah. representation of kids who are a little bit older than him, but sort of close to his age, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did that go? And, well, it was pretty good, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really interesting to actually be able to talk to him about what was going on in that story, which has been a part of my mind for a long time now. Mm-hmm. But um, but I also thought, oh, God, well, is he really telling Is he telling me what he really thinks, yeah. you know? Well, you, I think have a slight advantage in that um, there's nothing inherently uh, like if if kids can just tune out words on a screen or or pieces of paper with type typing on it, uh, especially if if they're not, uh, you know, fully a a full reader yet. Um, So I'm sure you, you didn't have to like slam your laptop closed when it, when (laughs) when your kids walked into your room or something like that. But but for me, it's harder to to hide because since I work from home and, um, you know, I have (laughs) sort of trained my kids to be 
comic book fans from an early age. And so, of course, when they see comics being drawn in their apartment, they're a little bit um, tantalized. Uh, so I it, it really with Nora is just a, a practical thing that at, at a um, I, I'm actually grateful that I was working on uh, Killing and Dying, which has probably more adult content to it when she was so young and mm-hmm. was either was either oblivious or I could easily hide it from her. Um, but at, at this point it's, it, it's way too much <laughs> trouble to try and uh, hide anything from her because uh, it's, you know, pages are pinned up on, on the wall above my desk. Right. And, um, and she just likes comics. I mean, it doesn't matter who, who drew it, but if she sees something in, in, in that format, she's going to be drawn to it. So um, she pretty much read every page of the new book as I was completing it. And then at a certain point, I think I was about three quarters of the way done with the drawing the, the finished pages. And I came into my studio and she was sitting there and she'd found the little um, Itoya folder that I had the rough draft in oh, and, wow. was, and, and was reading the pages that I hadn't done the final draft of yet because she was sort of curious about how the book was going to end so she skipped ahead into the rough draft and 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 finished reading wow wow that's amazing so um she appears in the book i mean she's she's an important character that's part of the the draw for sure (laughs) her 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 interest definitely increased uh when i got to the chronology that involved (laughs) involved her and have you guys talked about how she feels about that, about, you know, being represented in your work, you know, work that's going to be published and read by thousands of people? I mean, what, mm-hmm. what is, how is, how is that talked about in your household or how does she, how does she conceive of that? Uh, I, I know it's, it's different um, in other, in other families, but in this one, I'm actually the voice of reason, the one who's making kind of ethical calls and saying, no, I don't think mm-hmm. I should include that anecdote. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. want to expose you in that way because at least at this point in her life, she would love nothing more than to be famous and to be recognized <laughs> <laughs> and, and to, to have people say that they thought something she said in a comic was funny or something like that. So wow. um, I'm actually kind of more of the, 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 voice of reason. And, and I definitely made some editorial choices along the way about, about what to include and how mainly like detail too. Like I, I don't, I didn't want to be too specific about where she goes to school or, or, you know, people who, you know, like ancillary characters, like I didn't want to include friends of hers by name or, or right. Like that. Right. Cause you're, you're protecting her privacy too. I'm, I'm trying to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I want to go back now for a second to the second part of uh, what we were talking about earlier when you mentioned not wanting to um, show the book piecewise. And mm. I'm coming back there sort of by way of Nora being interested in following out the trajectory of the book. Right. Um, this book, as we've talked about it before, um, you know, you see it as a series of anecdotes that are that end in a kind of punchline. And I must say that as I was reading the book, I laughed out loud at the end of every section. I was That's like great. beside myself sometimes <laughs> because it's just like, oh, could it be any worse? You know, <laughs> um, there are things like, like, you know, you're at a restaurant with Sarah who you're just dating at the time. Yeah. And they're, they're 
a couple of people sitting next to you who start talking about your book. Um, and the man in the conversation starts talking about it in this very intelligently disparaging way. Right. Um, and you know, it's very awkward and you move to the sushi bar instead of the tables. And then Sarah just becomes enraged. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it just one after another, of these situations where it's just like, could that, did that, re- I mean, it just sounds so horrible or, yeah. or, you know, like an earlier situation where um, you're being interviewed by, um, by a journalist who happens to be an attractive young woman. Um, <laughs> and you guys go on a walk after your conversation at a diner Oh. Um, and you have not yet realized at that point in your life that you're lactose intolerant and you've just eaten <laughs> some, you know, eggs Benedict with extra hollandaise and a, a large latte, latte. Yeah. Um, and things don't go so well on that walk. Right. And I, I just kept, I just kept thinking, <laughs> oh my God, you know, like we've all had these experiences that are horribly embarrassing, but to, um, to have them accrue the way they do in this book, <laughs> one after the other, and then to be followed, if I can speak about this without giving anything away, with a kind of moment of really a real existential reckoning, mm-hmm. kind of caused me as a reader to start thinking, you know, like, well, what what is it for? You know, why are we pursuing these things that seem so important to us? And mm-hmm. what context do they have? And, you know, as we look at the rest of our lives how do they contextualize our relationships and everything else that that uh, is and should be important to us yeah um i guess i i guess the question that i'm trying to ask here is um is whether you feel like this book really belongs to a particular moment in your in the development of your life as an artist, because it kind of seems like one of the things that is remarkable about these stories that you're telling is, is that even though as you evolve in your writing life and as you sort of become um, more renowned and as more people have read your work, um, one thing that remains consistent is the kind of, acuteness and depth of embarrassment that seems to sort of chase <laughs> you through your writing life. Yeah. Um, and I guess it, it, it felt like a really, um, I don't know, it felt like a really grown up book in that sense, in the sense that like we, we, maybe we recognize as we get older that what we hope to shed when we're just starting out in some art or some career, um, all the insecurities that we think we can leave by the wayside are kind of part of who we are. Yeah. Um, and that that seemed to be a very strong line running through the book. But I just wonder how that comes up against your reckoning with mortality that enters later in the narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, this was the least uh, calculated and, and premeditated book that I've ever done. Um, so... In other words, I, I really didn't 100% know where I was going to end up when I started working on it. Um, and a lot of it was sort of developed in, in progress, which is something that I've, I've always been a little, or not a little, uh, very nervous about doing. Um, I'm, I'm generally a, a meticulous planner. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think um, it was 
I, I, I guess it's sort of I'm sort of thinking out loud on paper as as the mm-hmm. book book progresses, and um, I was I, I guess I just was at some point realized that I was heading towards the the real challenge was going to be arriving at the the mm, sort of a- ambiguous conclusion that that I that I've reached about about my career and my work um and uh and I think that it ended up being a little bit of a balancing act like I think that um if you know I just showed all the 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 funny humiliations then then the 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 judgment would land on the side of like well yeah it was kind of a waste and and what's the point (laughs) and then if I just did a portrait of my present day life with my my happy family and my my uh pleasant work environment and and my nice career and everything it would seem like a a a brag or something Mm -hmm. um and so I, I wanted to really have both those sides and, and, um, uh, in a way I, I feel like th- this was a story that would have been useful to me when I was an aspiring cartoonist. Um, right. uh, because I really pinned everything on the idea of becoming a cartoonist. I was sure that it would, um, be the source of, income and friendship and happiness and um and in a lot of ways it it did bring me that um but it never in my wildest dreams did I predict any of the other <laughs> the other things yeah. that I detail in this book. Well do you think that going all in like you did was necessary in a way to um arriving where you are now ultimately? I mean yes to, to arrive very at the very specific place where I am, but um, and and I used to to extrapolate from that and think that that was true of all aspiring cartoonists, and I've since been proven very wrong, and I've 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 revised that thought because there are people who've who've uh, uh, decided to become cartoonists later in life or with a more <laughs> balanced life. Um, uh, you know, and, and have, have ended up producing great work. Um, but for me, in terms of who I am and who I was and the point that I, the very specific point that I am at, I think, uh, it it only could have come as a result of this kind of maniacal single-minded, uh, devotion to, to the craft. Um, and like I I say, like I say in the book, I, I, have mixed feelings about that. I mean, it's, it's kind of too late for me to, to ever devote that much uh, attention to any other pursuit. I mean, there's just not enough time in my life now for me to do that much, um, to be on one, one path like that. Yeah. Well, if I, if I can, um, uh, sort of open up the perspective just a little bit on that, I feel like you are also deeply devoted to your, life as a parent which is something I see every day living downstairs from me you know (laughs) I mean it's I think that one of the things that one of the evolutions in this book that I find really interesting is the um, way your attention becomes organically divided between 
your work and your parenting. And there's actually a marvelous scene that I feel um, approaches this. Oh, there are a number of them later in the book, but but one that I think approaches this idea really directly is when you and Sarah are in Penn Station with Nora <laughs> when Nora's a toddler. Yeah. And she starts to have a tantrum because she wants a certain snack. And and, um, and you and Sarah are sort of trying to figure out how to help calm her down and give her what she wants without um, her giving her the sense she's gotten it by having a tantrum. Right. And there's a, another commuter, an elderly woman, who starts commenting on your parenting. And at the very same time, you're approached by a fan who starts commenting on your work and then starts talking to you about a fellow cartoonist's work. Um, and yeah. it just is such a brilliant confluence of those two powerful streams in your life right now, which, you know, um, any of us who are working as parents right now feel especially acutely as we try to navigate um, those those demands during the pandemic. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, do you feel like you talked a little bit about how your work life changed as you become became a parent you feel like you can point to things that are significantly different now from from before i think um well yeah i mean in terms of what's different the the, the main thing is uh the fact that for many years of my life i had too much free time i had mm. you know uh sometimes weeks at a time of of just being alone and and working i, I lived by myself in a, an apartment in Berkeley. Um, and I would just go for long stretches of, you know, maybe once a week I'd go out and meet some friends for lunch or something. And then other than that, I was locked in that apartment, um, and, you know, working and wasting time. And, and, you know, now that's completely gone and, and I have to carve out time and, um, really kind of struggle to find quiet. Um, and I guess the, 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 the shock for me is that my level of output is about the same. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that um, I, I didn't become suddenly, you know, slower or or less prolific. Um, mm -hmm. That that the, the the drawings didn't drop off in 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 their you know meticulous <laughs> uh, quality or whatever and. Um, right. So I, yeah, that was, that was a shock. But you, but you manage your time a lot differently now. Time for a short break. When we come back, Julie and Adrian talk about knowing who they are as writers and draw inspiration from a Times Square dwelling recluse. Stick around. Welcome back to this bookable bonus conversation with Julie Oringer and Adrian Tomina. So much of what you're talking about, I think, has to do with um, your deep knowledge of who you are as a writer um, and as an artist. And I, I was, um, I was listening to Susan Choi and Jenny Egan talking about their processes together um, on mm. one of the earlier episodes of this podcast. And Jenny was talking about uh, the importance of, of kind of being in the flow of just sort of being patient with one's own um, 
with one's own process and with the mm-hmm. way one's own work has to unfold, which seems to me like it requires a lot of self-knowledge um, mm, and, and patience with oneself. Um, but I was really also struck as I was reading this book um, by the way you seem to know yourself, not only <laughs> psychologically, but also physically. Um, I, I'm just fascinated by this because as I was looking at the way you render yourself on the page, like the way your shirt hangs on your shoulders or the way your arms hold tension against your knees as you lean forward or the way your own eyebrow raises in a particular expression of surprise as you're talking to somebody. I just felt like I was seeing you so accurately in a way that I could not conceive of how you could possibly have seen yourself, you know? And there's this, there's this marvelous scene in the book where you are, um, you're at Carnegie Hall having this interview with Terry Gross for Fresh Air. And you have a kind of out-of-body experience, the way you render it on the page. You kind yeah. of like rise up genie-like out of your yeah. own body, and you're watching yourself from a corner of the room. And I kept thinking, my God, like, that's how. That's how he, he can do it. You know, he, he can <laughs> see himself from outside. Um, but I, I really would love to hear you talk about how you know yourself physically well enough to be able to render your own expressions and your own gestures so clearly, even apart from the acute psychological rendering that exists in this book. I I have to wonder if it isn't just the sort of physical version of what all writers, um, even, you know, poets or prose authors are, are trying to do. I mean, I feel like uh, even in, in, in your most, uh, you know the, the your stories that are that are very different of yours from your present day circumstance. I'm sure you're imbuing it with your own thoughts, your own personality, mm-hmm. and and in a way bringing these fictional characters to life by giving them a little bit of your DNA or your blood or your your thoughts. Right. Um, and I, I feel like that is what always brings writing alive for me. Like. Um, uh, whether it's explicitly autobiographical or not, uh, I, I really respond to personal work, you know, um, mm-hmm. even, even if it's a fantasy story or a science fiction story. But if I feel like the author is really trying to put themselves into it and trying to figure out things about themselves, that's what's going to make it a compelling read to me way more than um, the plot elements or anything like that. And I think um, that's, something that I try to do in my fiction comics. Um, and so it felt very natural. And in a way I could be even, I could have a few steps less of, of, of masking that process with this book where I could just be very, very direct in that, in that process. Um, and I think, you know, you probably have a, a better insight into some of those things that I'm aiming for in the in the physical depictions because he seems <laughs> going up and down the stairs every day um yeah. but my i don't know my hope is that that still transmits something to someone who's never met me before and that they they you know um because there's so many books that i've read and i've you know i don't even my life never overlapped um in history with with the writer but i i feel like oh that's that's them speaking from their heart here or that's something that really occurred and they had to put it down on paper or something like that. 
Oh, yeah, I totally agree with everything you've just said. I just don't know how you execute it physically, Adrian. I just don't know <laughs> how you literally do it. I mean, that's, the, that's one of the things that makes it really fun for me to know um, artists who, who work in other media, you know, because it's, yeah. there's something that's just, I, I can imagine how to you it feels natural to move yeah. from inhabiting your own body to rendering your own body. Yeah. But to me, as somebody who doesn't work very often in visual media there's just so much mystery in that you know there's just that that feels like magic to me that feels <laughs> interesting. i think it's one of the reasons i'm a fan of your work it's just that i feel like you've always had that you've always had a way of of projecting the personal into the physical renderings of the characters who you're well, who you're representing um and i wonder if that is an element of some of the um of some of the cartoonists who were who influenced you? I mean, you spoke about it in terms sure. of fiction writers you like, but I, I'm I'm curious to know uh, if there were cartoonists whose work you saw that quality in and thought, oh yeah, that's that's something that I I I want that that represents something that I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Every every cartoonist that I've that I've ever uh, been a fan of. That's that's the kind of the through line through all of it from um, you know something as mainstream and 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 commercial as as peanuts by charles schultz um up to uh you know uh current current day artists like like chris ware yeah um i i, I think that um and and you know it's interesting because now uh, i can there, i can go back and look at the 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 comics that i liked as a kid um and there was a, a long period where uh, I was just uh, like everyone else at my age. I was reading uh, superhero comics, and, right. and um, when I go back and look at the ones that still have resonance for me versus the ones that I just am happy to throw away, it, it is—it's that same thing where I, I feel like um, an artist. Like uh, there's there's a guy named Steve Ditko who who created Spider-Man and then mm -hmm. and, and ended up becoming uh, a very uh, solitary eccentric guy living in, in Times Square, I believe. But, um, he, he was doing, um, like a, it was like a job. It was like, here's the story. I got to turn it into a comic and meet, meet the monthly deadline. And, um, you know, I, I go back and look at those comics and I feel like this is just as, as personal <laughs> as, uh, as so-called alternative comics that are being produced in my, in my lifetime. Right, right. And that's incredible. I mean, that's part of probably what makes it so memorable, part of what makes it endure. You know? Of course. Yeah, I um, think so. I think so. I mean, I, th I think that that I think that just is true in uh, my my taste in in art in general, whether it's it's film or, or music or, or writing. Um, th that's important to me. And, and I know that's I, I, I say it, to me, that seems like common sense. But I know that that's also not a top priority for for other people. I know that there's um, a way to enjoy art that is totally divorced from that, and that's that's interesting to me too. Yeah, well, I I am curious about um, those the way those lines of influence run and the way that we sort of imbibe um, things that are meaningful to us in each other's work. I mean, I I've, I've thought a lot about you mentioned getting together in Berkeley with um, some other cartoonist friends of yours. And specifically, I know that you had kind of a regular um, 
a regular lunch or dinner meeting going with um, Dan Klaus and Richard Sala. Um, right. And I'm, I'd really love to hear you talk a little bit about the artistic relationship uh, that existed between the three of you, um, especially um, in light of the fact that we recently lost Richard. Uh, he died yeah. May 7th uh, at the age of 65, was it? Seems so young. Yeah. Um, your styles are so different. Um, yeah. I can see more commonalities between your work and Dan's, but Richard's work sure. was really quite unusual. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, what were some of your conversations like? What did you guys talk about? Yeah. What was it like to look at each other's work at that time? And how do you think your, your lines of influence might have run? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a topic that I could, I could uh, talk forever about um, because it was so so formative for me. But um, just to give a little background, I, I moved from Sacramento to Berkeley to go to college when I was 18. Um, and I had already been just a massive uh, alternative and underground comic fan. And I had been buying the work of, of Dan and Richard. And I uh, corresponded with Dan uh, through the mail. And uh, just by pure random chance, I ended up after one year in the dorms, I ended up moving into an apartment uh, on College Avenue that happened to be equidistant from uh, both Dan and Richard, who were also living on College Avenue at the time. And um, we actually were uh, introduced by by Dan's wife, uh, who was a classmate of mine at Berkeley. And um, I think starting starting right then when I was, I guess, a sophomore in college, uh, probably for the next 10 or so years, uh, the three of us would get together for lunch every Wednesday and wow. we'd, um, uh, get, get a gross like diner kind of breakfast lunch <laughs> and then, uh, and then go do some kind of errand. I think really we wanted to just sit and talk to each other, but it felt weird to just spend so much time just sitting and talking. So we would invent an errand. Like we would go to the comic book store together uh -huh. or, we, or we would go to the art store or we would go look at used bookstores or something like that. And I have zero memory of any of the junk that I bought on any of those expeditions, but I have crystal clear memories of the conversations we had while we were looking around at things and buying things and, and, and sitting there afterwards having a coffee or something. And, um, yeah, I've, I've, in the past, I've, I've described it as sort of my, um, very cheap version of art school. Uh, I, yeah, I right, feel right. like I, I, um, learned so much about, uh, what I was trying to do at the time, um, which was become a professional cartoonist. And I learned really concrete, like physical, like, hands-on stuff like I remember once going over to uh Dan's house and we were gonna go out and get something to eat and he said like I don't want to push but um do you mind if I just show you a little trick that's always been really helpful for me about drawing backgrounds in perspective you're kidding and, and I, I said, well it was I mean it's 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 hard to just describe uh, on a right. podcast but but I said yeah you know actually there's nothing that <laughs> that would that would make me happier and he sat down and and got out his drawing supplies and showed me this thing that i i'm like 
literally right now I'm working on a New Yorker cover and I'm using the exact technique that he taught me. Um, and, uh, and then, and, but it also was more, um, uh, broad and, and, um, like a lot of conversations just about how to, how to live as an artist and how to manage, um, being married with being mm. obs- obsessive with your work. Um, so I had, I had, I had these two, two friends who were, who were, uh, older than me and, and had experienced and dealt with so many things that, that were still kind of on the horizon for me. I, I wasn't right. married. I didn't have a family. I wasn't making a living off my work. I wasn't trying to balance between being, um, an illustrator and a cartoonist. I didn't, I hadn't, um, dealt with any of the business stuff yet. I, I mean, they taught me about how to do, how to be a self-employed person and set money aside for taxes, which had never uh-huh. occurred to me. And, um, uh, and then, you know, uh, Dan also, uh, ventured into the world of Hollywood a long time ago. And, uh, uh-huh. I, I got to learn a lot from that and I'm constantly getting his advice and pretty much any, any move I make, in regard to that industry, I, I run by him first. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's, it's a, it was a long education and it's something that I still rely on. And, um, yeah. And like you said, uh, you know, Dan's influence is, is very much more visible in my work. Um, but, uh, Richard was a huge part of that. And I think, um, uh, it was, I, I, I think it was, just a matter of, you know, like I'd already set on a path that was a little more similar to, to Dan's style and it was mm-hmm. easier for me to, to steal from him and to, to emulate him. Mm-hmm. Whereas to, uh, if when I was at that point in my career, if I started incorporating Richard Sala techniques, <laughs> it would have seemed, um, uh, very conspicuous. And, uh, uh, but, um, Again, he was he was even even older than Dan and ha- had been in the business for for even longer. Um, uh-huh. I think when you know, I think uh, he was sort of uh, a bit of a veteran already by the time Dan met him, and he was like, "Oh, I can't believe I'm living down the street from Richard Sala." And, right. Uh, so, um, and and I got to say that when I was thinking back on all this, uh, when when Richard died, one <clears throat> one of the things that came to mind was that the 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 humility of the fact that he was richard was already an established name had done animation for mtv and had a, a, a incredible illustration career and cartooning and everything and he uh always um treated me and dan um as as equals if not uh his his uh his mentors or his superiors in some in some strange way um and uh you know i i i just i i definitely don't think that i have that um that natural uh inclination and it, I, I just really admired especially in hindsight thinking like what a, a kind of cocky idiot i was when i met him <laughs> <laughs> and and 
not once did I get the impression that he was he was put off by it or never did he feel the need to kind of put me in my place or or pull rank or or anything like that. And um, aside from all the artistic things that I described, I think as just a as a person, that's something that's really uh, inspired me going forward. Well, and maybe that's one of the reasons it's important to have relationships that are, you know, if you're developing as an artist to have relationships that are not codified by academia, you know, Mm -hmm. because if one person is labeled as professor and the other person is labeled as student, then maybe in a way it kind of limits the, um, the kind of relationship that you would be naturally inclined to have artistically with one another. Yeah. Um, But it seems that the beauty of what you guys were doing was that you were, you were kind of just living artistic lives in proximity to each other. Yeah. And so there was this natural kind of exchange of ideas that was taking place that would allow for um, experiences that were that were directly, uh, you know, direct teaching experiences, like what you just described Dan doing when he was showing you how to render perspective in a particular way, and that were also kind of this indirect teaching that just has to do with watching somebody else live a life that's a little bit farther down the line chronologically oh, yeah. speaking. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean that I mean both have been invaluable to me but I feel like um you know if I don't draw the background in this <laughs> illustration properly very few people will notice but um the other things I think uh will will impact other people in my life you know um in terms of interpersonal lessons you know like um yeah. like I said they they both uh, were married before me. Um, they lost family members before me. They mm. uh, had children before me. Um, all these kind of, and and even they 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 went through health scares. They you know all these things that uh, I, I've definitely been able to to learn from and 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 get their advice about. And I think that's the kind of stuff that will really have a ripple effect throughout my life. Like I think my my kids will benefit from it. I think my marriage will benefit from it and my relationship to my parents will benefit from it. Um, Well, and in the case of this new book, it seems like your, your work is benefiting directly from that too, because this, this book, especially as it progresses really becomes about how our mortality gives us perspective on everything else we do in our lives. Um, And so it kind of seems like in a way you are passing along that teaching. Um, yeah. which is one of the things I, I really loved about it. Um, I, I wonder if, as I see, we're, um, we're kind of running towards the end of our time, you know, if there's anything that you, that you might want to transmit. I mean, it sounds like you received over the course of many years, some really great pieces of advice, but for, um, for writers or cartoonists who are coming up now, um, is there any one practical thing that you think is important to keep in mind or anything that can really help people move to a place of greater seriousness with their work? Um, well, I think one major change that's happened within the world of uh, cartooning uh, in, in recent years is that it has become a slightly viable career like there is enough <laughs> money involved in it that that some people can make a living off it and uh-huh. a few people can get very rich at it um and i think that completely 
altered the landscape because when I started, there was no hope of any of that. There was no, mm-hmm. there was no fame. There was no money. Um, a lot of the people who were doing it at the top of the game also were working at an art store or mm-hmm. were, were waiting tables or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, in a lot of ways, I encourage young artists to try and put themselves in the mindset of, of, of before this whole revolution um, and to, to make sure that they're doing it for the reasons of uh, wanting to do it themselves and, or more importantly, needing to do it as mm-hmm. opposed to thinking um, that it could be a stepping stone to an animated TV show or um, that it could make you famous on the internet or, <laughs> or something like that, you know, which even now s- feels strange to even be saying, but um <laughs> I think the best work in the history of comics came out of um, uh, a very, uh, very real kind of personal motivation. Um, even someone like like Charles Schultz, who became so successful and so so famous, um, I, I I honestly think that um, even if you were to have taken away all the money and the fame and the merchandise and and all that. I still think that he would get up every morning and still crank out <laughs> that comic strip. Oh yeah, it seemed to come from a place of such personal necessity. Yeah, and yeah. you really need that, I think, in order to weather the inevitable embarrassments and disappointments <laughs> and setbacks that will come. Yeah, so. I mean, the other the other thing that I it made me think of when I was thinking back to Dan and Richard was um, when I was spending all that time with them, they were kind of like my, my old guy friends. And mm-hmm. I also had uh, a kind of a broader range of, of more like peers, like young, <laughs> young people, at least closer to my age group, who were um, uh, kind of at the same place in their career. Um, and I remember just always, when I would kind of move between the two worlds, I remember being so aware of... Um, how competitive the, the younger group could be sometimes uh-huh. and how um, it could sometimes be hard for them to be happy for another person's success right. uh, or kind of viewing other people's work through the prism of, of, well, you know, I did that better or I did that mm-hmm. first or something like that. And, uh, and then it was, to me, it was always such a great relief to then go back to the, the other world with, with these older cartoonists. And I, I, I can say with with honesty that, that that there was no competitiveness there. They 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 weren't um, looking over their shoulder at what someone else was getting, um, and uh, and and I think that really speaks to how how deeply connected they were with with their own work, and just that they were they had absolute conviction that they were they they were doing what they had to do. That that it was something that had to come out, um, and that they were going to work as hard as they could. And I think that, um, that sort of, uh, diluted some of those, those feelings of, of, you know, if, if you did the work that, that you absolutely believed in and that, that you put your heart into and it didn't sell quite as many copies as, as someone else, I, I don't think that stings as much as if you were conscious of that the whole time and thinking, how can I craft this so that I can get in on some of the success that so-and-so is having? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's right. Because 
it seems like what it comes down to for people who are committed to it in the way you're talking about is the is the compulsion the sense of necessity around rendering human experience translating one's own experience into um either a form that communicates through other characters to a mm -hmm. reader or one that does much of what I see you doing in this current book, which is just kind of like placing your own, um, your own observations, your own life, the, the raw intimacy of your experience as honestly on the page as possible, um, not only to show accurately who you are and what your own experience is like, but also to draw lines of connection between all of us. Yeah, so, and yeah, I mean, and of course, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this too. That you you also want people to to be cognizant of 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 business things, and and uh, you know, um, I, I, but I think it's just a a strange twist that in in the early days of of my career, everybody I knew was a dedicated artist and were devoted to the work, but they were terrible business people and they had no sense of <laughs> managing their career and they were getting audited and they were, you know, uh, they, they had no idea how, what to do if Hollywood came calling or, or anything like that. And there were a lot of heartbreaking stories of people getting taken advantage of or whatever. And I think now it's almost the pendulum has swung so far where people are so savvy about that stuff and and they they are so attuned to the ideas of of marketing and having agents and having you know a, a, a presence online and and all these things whenever i go to talk to an uh, a, a undergraduate art class the questions are always about those things and right. i feel like i feel like um you know like there's a lot of information about that now and it's 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 important to also not lose sight of the the, the other side of, of, of the, the business or the art form. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know whether you think, and I, I'm seeing that we should probably um, wrap it up after this maybe, but um, I'm curious to know whether you feel like um, living in this current moment where we've had, first of all, the major life reorganization of the pandemic and then the political reorganization around um, Black Lives Matter and racial awareness, uh, whether those two factors working together are going to change the focus uh, for people who in the past were maybe more business oriented. I mean, I feel like it is, I feel like it's already created a kind of reorganization or reprioritization for me inside the um, body of work that I'm thinking of doing mm. next. But mm. um, how does, yeah, what does that mean uh, literally? Like, how does, how is that going to manifest for in your work? Well, I guess one thing, one effect maybe that that the current political moment is having is that that well, not only does this uh, vast scale reminder of our own mortality make me feel all the more urgency about getting the work done, mm. um, I think I also feel like more bravery is needed somehow. Mm -hmm. Like I, uh, one of the books that I just embarked on, the novel that I've just embarked on, uh, is about growing up in New Orleans and becoming aware of um, the way race manifests in the South. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt a lot of trepidation around 
venturing into this subject because it's so complicated and it's so yeah. fraught. But it also yeah. kind of seems like we can't wait. We have yeah. to tell our own truth now so that yeah. we can, you know, make the change happen that it's clear we all need, you know. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm glad, to, glad to hear you say that because I think that's uh, going to be one of the strange repercussions, I think, for a while, is that while some people are feeling emboldened and um, more daring in certain ways, I think there's also a, a way in which that some people can start to feel a little petrified of, of misstepping um, uh, to the point of um, shutting down artistic ideas that they think might run the risk of getting them in trouble um, or getting involved in a debate that they don't feel comfortable engaging in. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a great idea. And I, and I hope that um, people, especially the artists that I admire can, can withstand that and not, um, and not shy away from, from um, the really important and interesting subject matter uh, because of that fear of, you know, uh, a negative tweet or something like that. Yeah. Well, in a way, I feel like our discomfort needs to be our guide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we feel comfortable, then we're probably not, we're not pushing the conversation enough, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, what's got to happen. If there's actually going to be a shift, I can't be afraid to write about how I was taught to perceive race when I was, you know, seven years old in new Orleans. You right. Know? right. Um, and I, I well, was. Yeah. I, and, and I, and I hope, and I hope along with that, uh, that I hope that's a path that, that artists take. But I also hope that as, as an audience, that we can make an effort to be um, open to uh, points of view or, or, or thoughts that don't 100% align with, with our own, own beliefs. Well, I think that's a great place for us to rest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Adrian, I'm so grateful to you for talking to me. It's just been so cool to have this um, new sort of line of insight into your work. Um, oh, well, thank, thank you so much. I, I, I owe you so much in, in, in many ways, but I, I, I really uh, appreciated this conversation and it felt um, a lot more uh, uh, neighborly <laughs> than, than the typical <laughs> interview. Thank you, Julie, and thank you, Adrian, for this incredible conversation. Julie Oringer's most recent book is The Flight Portfolio, which is published by Knopf and is available now. Adrian Tomina is the author of The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist, which is published by Drawn and Quarterly and is available July 21st. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall but 5-1 when illustrated. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixes and sound designs the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. That's one of the best ways for other listeners to find Bookable. We're back next week with another episode, and we will see you then. This is Bookable.